Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, hey, keep finding your seat, wrapping up your conversations. So excited to be with you guys today. Well, man, hey, let me pray and we'll jump right in. Father, I thank you for the privilege of gathering like this. God, I thank you that every time we get the chance to come and gather, you remind my heart things that my heart drifts from. That though I love you, that though I want my heart to be all yours, I am deeply forgetful and I am prone to wander and to leave the God I love. And I thank you that this, for me, as well as I pray for all of us, acts as a lightning rod of remembrance where we come and we just again come with a heart that says, God, you can have all of it. I don't want to give you part of it. You can have all of it. So would you help us today, God, as we go to do that? Would you do what only you can do, and that is change lives? Please. If you guys would, just where you are now, take the next 10 seconds, if you happen to have a faith, and pray that God would use this time to encourage and strengthen your heart. If you would, take the next 10 seconds. Pray for me. I am excited. But man, there's something about a nervousness to this morning. And pray that I would be yielded and helpful. Lord, I thank you for the joy of this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Man, we really am excited to be with you guys. Part of the reason that I even asked in the moment of prayer was because really where this text is today. Let let me talk to you about how I started this week and then how I ended this week. If you don't know where we are, this is your first time with us, we are working our way through the book of James. We're 80% done, right? There's a tunnel of light for those of you that's like, how much longer will we be in James? Looks like about three weeks unless something changes, and I reserve every right to change that, right? But as we came to this passage, to this text, I really thought about it. I knew it was here. Right? But last weekend, it was Easter, and then Monday morning comes, and that's where my heart begins to shift to what God would teach us next. And immediately, my heart started to get nervous. My heart started to get worried. Monday nights, I have the privilege. I, I, I do communion with a group called the trustees, men that lead alongside me at the springs. And I went to them, and I was talking with them, and I was like, hey, guys, here's where we are in James. Here's the topic. Right, we're coming. It's just out of Easter. Maybe there's some new folks who like came to check out church for the first time at Easter and they got like church baggage. And this is a passage, man. Like it's pretty hard hitting, it's pretty tough. What what if we just continued? We'll still teach the Bible. But what if we just kind of try something different? What if we just focused on something else? And these faithful men looked at me and they're like, Well, well, John, did you did you plan it to where it would work out like this? And if you know me, I'm not a good planner at all, right? And I was like, no, not at all. Literally, we just kept going, and God so in his sovereignty happened to have it here. And he just looked at me. I was like, well, man, I think that answers it for you. What in you makes you nervous? What in you makes you think through? Maybe not this. So if you're here, and you're like skimming ahead, and you're checking, like, what is James 5 about? Right, today, guys, we're talking about something. We're talking about something that matters to a lot people. But before I jump into it, I want to share with you guys a story that really sets my mind and my heart as I think about this. Do you guys remember here, and and again, if you're a student or something like that, or you're still in school, or you're in kinder or first grade, this probably won't apply to you. But do you guys remember the first time 
you got a paycheck, like your first paycheck, and you felt a sense of, man, I got some money, right? Okay, some of you, it looks like I still don't feel that. All right. Well, hey, for me, that, that it really happened twice in my life. First time I was 16, I was working for a construction company. I worked a 55-hour week. I got paid $7.50 an hour, and it was one of those. I had to work two weeks. It was literally, I, I cleaned out these manholes. It was brutal. After week two, because I got paid at the end of week two, I got like a $500 check. I was 16. I had a girlfriend at the time, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with all of this? I didn't know what to do, so I took my girlfriend to Macaroni Grill, dropped like $40, and I was like, I have so much more left. Let's go again, right? That was my mindset. Second time, second time was in graduating college. So I have a finance degree, technically analytic consulting, but a finance degree, right, coming out of business school, and I, like a lot of people, like I'm ending college, and I'm like, okay, man, I got to find a job, I'm applying. I ended up getting a job with a consulting firm, kind of like you solve business problems. So I can remember the time, I was sitting in Einstein's Bagels in Atlanta. I got the offer letter through the email. I like immediately, it starts with like congratulations, and I'm like, okay, where's the salary? I scan down. Now, I'm going to tell you guys what I made. Here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to think, why would anyone give someone who's 21 years old that much money? And then some of you are going to think, dude, that's not that much money, right? So wherever you are, that's, how, that's probably how you're going to feel. But I can remember being a student, scrolling down and seeing $60,000. And then there was this next line. It said, before annual bonus. And I can remember literally sitting there in this Einstein's and being so excited and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I've got money. I've got money. Literally like a good finance guy. I can remember, I think I had class and I just skipped it because I was like, okay, I got a job. None of this matters now, right? Skipped it. I opened the computer and I bust out Excel and immediately I start making a budget. Immediately I start making a budget. Like I knew enough, okay, I got to like steward it, budget it. I didn't know what steward meant then, right? But I have to budget this amount and I start thinking through, okay, well, taxes, Uncle Sam's taking that. Like, I can't fight that, right? Okay, then I keep going, okay, here's probably how much housing, food, car insurance, cell phone, right? How much do I want to spend if I, if I had to wear nicer suits? Okay, so dry cleaning, I can remember setting aside some for dry cleaning. I can remember setting aside some for gas. I'm going to go out of state, so I got to be able to fly back at Christmas. So, hey, I'm going to set aside a little traveling money, all that kind of stuff. Like, very responsible. But then all that to say is I came down, and I can remember, I can remember at the end of this, being like, I'm going to have $800 a month, and I can do whatever I want with it. Whatever I want with it. And then, again, I'm pretty smart. I knew that 800 plus 800 is 1,600. So I knew what delayed gratification could get me. And I immediately start adding it up, and I am not kidding. Three things came to mind. Three things came to mind. I was like, I'm definitely buying a new iPad. And I remember thinking, well, that's less than 800. What do I do with the rest? And I was like, I'm going to get new shoes. And then after that, I remember thinking, I want a new watch. Like there was this tag watch, like Carrera style, where you could totally set it up. It was like $2,200, all that stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, ah. Delayed gratification, I'll save up, I'll buy that. Dude, I literally had the whole thing planned out. Why? It was the first time that I actually had. And the word I'll use, and this word is relative, but the word I'll use was 
wealth. I had money. I had the chance to not just budget, but like sincerely think through stewarding it. And what do I do with it? I had wealth. And here's the thing, y'all. There is nothing wrong with a nice watch. There is nothing inherently wrong with a new iPad, with new shoes. Nothing inherently wrong with it. But man, my heart drifted towards, man, I'm going to get what I want. That was about February. About six months later, sitting in an apartment in Dallas, Texas, reading this, Jesus Christ changed my eternity. And I can remember one of the things that happens is when, when he changes you, it's crazy, it's crazy. He changes you. And one of the things I knew that needed to change was how I steward, how I spend, how I manage my wealth. Because, man, even then, and again, I love iPads, I love all that stuff, it's all great, so don't sit here and come say, man, he, he's got something against the rich. That's not what I'm talking about. But, man, I began to have this conviction. I'm wasting this. Like, I could be using this, and I'm misusing this. I'm wasting this wealth. What I want to spend time talking about today, it's money. What James wants to teach you and I about is money, but more specifically, wealth. How do you and I waste it? He's taking a negative perspective today. How do you and I waste our wealth? Man, here, and as I go to even think about giving this talk, here's the thing that come to mind. Like, you come here, and you talk to this group of people, and immediately, like, as soon as I say that, everybody self-selects, oh, thank God, he's talking to the wealthy. That's not me. Right here, church, let, let me remind you, because what we tend to do is think about wealth in terms of, well, there's that guy with this house in my neighborhood. Like, there's that guy who drives that car. There's that person who lives on this side of town. Like, hey, I could take five vacations a year instead of my three, instead of my one, instead of my none. Hey, I could live in downtown Austin. I could live in downtown San Antonio. Now, that's crazy cost of living. That's, that's just wasting wealth. Like, we tend to somehow just take this broken, comparative look around and be like, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty well when it comes to wealth management. Today, we're going to see what is a kingdom mindset towards wealth management. One of the things that's always gotten me on this is when I stop and I don't make my comparison, this town, my friends, people in the same industry as me, people in the same position, but I make it God's perspective, which so you know is a global perspective. Did a little research this week. According to the global rich list, where you rank in terms of the global monetary elite, here's what I found out. If you make $30,000 US, not including any benefits, not including anything else, $30,000 in the United States, in terms of the global monetary elite, you are in the 1.23%. 1.23%, you are the global 1%. Right, the average median income in New Braunfels I think somebody told me once it's like $64,000. And it keeps increasing with more people that are coming. 
right? So here's what I'm telling you. New Braunfels, Schertz, Cibolo, Seguin, I, I don't care where you're coming from, we are in the wealthy. Man, I, I looked at how much, about 50,000. 50,000.31%, right? So I almost wanted to do with this, like come and somehow get like 100 people to come and line up on the stage to visually show how small of a number that would be. Where if I lined up 100 people, then I was like, I don't know if 100 people will be there. That would be awkward, right? But if I lined up 100 people, so visually imagine, right? There's like 100 of you there. And I lined y'all up, 0.31%, count 97 people and the final three. And if you make 50,000 or more, you would look down this line and see all of them be like, I make more. It's 0.31% if you make 50. 100,000? Let's say you make 100. Let's say you make 100. This is where I keep adding numbers because it was exciting, right? right you, let's say you make it 100. 0.08%. Now, here's what's hard because at 0.08%, the decimal point, if you remember the math, it keeps going that way. So 0.08%, it would round to 0.1, so it would just be one person, the very head of the line if 100 people were lined up. To where really, you can't use 100 people to really demonstrate how wealthy you are. You need 1,000 people. Because then you can set up 1,000 people, because then instead of having just one, there'd be eight folks. So imagine, if you make 100, right, throw in your benefits, throw in your retirement, this is totally net worth, throw it all in there. You make 100, there's a line of 1,000 people. You're number eight. You look down and you see 992 people. We are wealthy. Man, 250, right? 250. Yeah, you're, you're way down there too. You get the picture. Here's why I use that. There is nothing wrong with wealth. Nothing. People think that if you're rich, right, somehow you've cheated, you're broken, you're, you're wrong. No. Riches come with the temptation. It is a, a trial in and of themselves that oftentimes the poor don't face in a different way. This is not against having money. This is not against income producing. This is not against make the money. No. But what happens in the heart is when we don't just make money, but in the words of Macklemore, who is a philosopher slash rapper, yeah, that's right. You make the money, but do not let the money make do not let the money become what dictates identity, security, prestige, position, influence. Oh, man, he's got money. We better put him on the board. Oh, man, this guy's got money. Let's make him an elder. Oh, man, this guy's got money and influence. He's got to be an opa. That is wealth being misused. That's also people who don't have that kind of wealth coming and like a parasite trying to ride on someone else's coattails out of their own insecurity. No, the wealthy and the poor are called to love, fear, and trust God to be rich in good works. So that's where when it comes to this, man, we're not speaking against wealth. It's not what James is doing, but he's speaking against my tendency. He's speaking against your tendency is to waste wealth. 
So here's what we're going to do. James, in this whole passage, he goes negative. And then at the end, we're going we're to kind of turn it and show a positive way of how we steward wealth. But we're going to talk through how do you waste wealth? Because here's what matters, church. Whether you don't even make 30, you're here, and it's like welfare. Like you're here, and it's food stamps. Wherever you are, you are called to be generous in every form of your life. Why? You believe in the most generous giver of all time. Jesus Christ. So that's why what we're talking about today, right? And and I've heard folks explain it this way, and I've always appreciated it. When it comes to riches, there's kind of four people, four categories of folks generally you can talk about, right? People who are rich financially, and those people can then be poor spiritually, That's who James is writing to, the rich financially who are poor spiritually. But then there are the rich financially and those who are rich spiritually. And then there are the poor financially, who James repeatedly has called us to love them, to give it away, to show no partiality to the rich, to literally live your life in a way to where you acknowledge both as a child of the king. But there's the poor financially and the poor spiritually. And then you can have the poor financially who are actually spiritually rich. What James is talking about today, for you and I as we examine wealth, whether you have a lot or you have essentially none, is he wants you and I to be spiritually rich. So how do we waste it? First thing he's gonna show us, man, we hoard it. We abuse it, and then we squander it. Where we are in James to kind of set up chapter 5 in this transition, James has been walking us through for the past few months, like, hey, what are the marks, what are the characteristics of faithfulness in the heart of a Christian? How do we be doers and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves? How do we come and not give parts of our lives, parts of our hearts, parts of our faith to God, but we give all of it? Like those who say, He gave everything. How do we live in kind? Two weeks ago, if you were with us, we talked about, hey, what's the difference between God's will and our plan? How those two things, man, they often don't go together. And when they don't go together, I begin to get upset with God. And we begin to realize, no, that's not true. James, this week, where he is, is he's dovetailing this theme right out of, man, there's God's will and there's your plan. Oftentimes, those two don't go together. First topic, he comes out of the gate talking about his money. Why? James knew what his half-brother Jesus knew. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. See, when it comes to the stewardship of wealth, it is one discipleship topic amongst all discipleship topics. But there's a reason Jesus speaks about it more times than heaven and hell combined is because he knows its ability to creep into my heart. He knows its ability to creep into yours. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. James 5. James chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Is James, he's really outlining, and man, he's going to take a, like he's going hard on people. He takes an, an approach to say, here's how to waste your wealth. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. As James outlines for us today in one through six, how do you and I, how do we waste our wealth? How do we waste it? First thing he says is you hoard it. Right, where, where am I getting that language? Towards the very end of verse three where it says, you have laid up treasures for yourself. Laid up there, it literally talks about to store. But it's this, this indulgence to it where we store wealth for the sake of wealth. Right, and here's what happens because there's nothing wrong if you come here in, in budgeting or setting aside or, or going towards a retirement even though the whole reality of retire to Florida and just collect seashells, that is a lie. Don't sell out to that. That's a lesser lie for a Christian. There's nothing inherently wrong with saving. But when our heart shifts to hoarding, to laying up treasures for ourselves. That's where we've missed it. So what does that look like, man? When we store up wealth for the sake of prestige, what, what people think of us, hey, do you see the car I drive, the house I own, to show to the world, man, I've got it. Where we, where we show it up or, or where we hoard it up for the sake of significance in our own life, what we think about us, well, hey, I, I get to tell the world, man, I made it. I finally made it where I can come and then we stand on this whole like, man, I'm going to give the kids the life that I never had. And we like blame it on the kids, our greed. Or we hoard it in this way. Some of us, money was really tight growing up. It's really tight right now. Where to us, our lifeline, our provision, our security money. This is you where, like, especially, man, like, if this is you, you've probably done Dave Ramsey or you know all the financial tips and tricks, man. You have this amazing, fully funded emergency fund, but there's not enough fund that you can ever put for any type of emergency. That every step, it's, well, hey, well, let's just put it towards retirement, and then maybe one day we can distribute or give it away then. Where we come, and, and I can remember talking with somebody, they're like, well, John, man, John, you don't get it. And I was like, okay, tell me what I don't get. You got to do well in order to do good. And I remember thinking, what I love is when people with significant wealth, significant wealth, steward it the way God should. That God would have them. That is an honorable thing in every way. Like if you've got that, do that. You do not have to do well in order to do good. That's a lie. Just do good. But that's where James, he's coming at, is when we, when we hoard it, when we store it up for us. You see this here right from the text. He, he starts there. Oh, excuse me. I want to walk through what happens to hoarded wealth. Like, what are characteristics of it that James outlines? Right? The first one that happens to our hoarded wealth is that it vanishes. It disappears. It corrupts. It corrodes. It rots. Hoarded wealth vanishes. You see it here. Riches have rotted. Garments are moth-eaten. Gold and silver have corroded. Riches there, what he's likely speaking to is like, our, like crops. This was an agrarian society. So you would have known who was wealthy by, okay, how much wheat does this guy have? Like how much produce, what has he got? 
The second thing is garments, man. The same way as we do today with clothes. Like, oh man, that guy's by name brand. Like there's a wealth that comes with that. Or I don't even know the, I don't know, I guess like an Armani suit. It's like best I got to think through how we can really show that. Right? Even the garments is a way to assess wealth through one, your, your products, your crops. The way you can think about that is like you in industry, you in your job role, you in whatever successes that you can take. And then the second is the clothing that you wear, the appearances. Man, for the longest time, and I'd still wear one, but for the longest time, I was like, dude, I just got to get a Rolex. Dude, you know what happens to Rolex? Things going to corrode. Things are going to corrode. If you have one, Bless you. Don't find life in it, though. Find life in the giver of the Rolex, not the Rolex itself. Moth-eaten. And the final one, he says, silver and gold. That would have been the third category of how to assess wealth. Precious metals, man. It's been the standard and currency of the way we evaluated wealth for centuries. What happens to gold? It darkens. What happens to silver? It tarnishes. Hoarded wealth vanishes. It goes away. You can't depend on money. Your and my security comes from God and God alone. Man, when I was in college, that was right when 2008 recession hit, right there in October, man, whole world stopped on a dime. My family was in real estate. I noticed it. I can remember folks coming out. They had jobs planned where in a day they lost their jobs. I knew people who who their pensions were entirely gone. Pensions cut in half. We can't find security in money. It corrodes. You know what your and I's ultimate emergency fund is? God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That is specifically within the context of financial resources. Hoarded wealth vanishes. What else does hoarded wealth do? Hoarded wealth poisons. Hoarded wealth poisons. You see it. Their corrosion, talking about silver and gold, it will eat your flesh like fire. I love studying this because probably just like you, I read that and I was like, that's intense. Like, that is poetic language. It's language using imagery. And here's what he's speaking to is the reality. When you and I fixate, when we make money or grieve the thing, it poisons us. That's true whether you believe in God or not. But man, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, it's an offense against the Spirit. Hoarded wealth makes us sick. It's a present form of discipline from God. Let me show it to you in another passage. 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and so pierce themselves with many pangs. You and I are not above greed. It doesn't matter if you make 5,000. It doesn't matter if you make 500,000. You can pierce yourself with many pangs. Hoarded wealth poisons. Hoarded wealth, it brings misery. I'll show you this from the text in just a second, but I wanted to point something out. Even outside, whether or not you, you trust your Bible, you believe in your Bible, even though I tell you, man, trust this. This is not God when it comes to money to looking to rip you off, to keep you from your hard-earned money, what you did. No, he gave you the money in the first place. He gave you the ability to make it. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father above. He gave that to you. 
But he knows your heart and he knows mine that it'll bring misery when we make that the goal rather than him. The number one sided cause for divorce in our culture is money. Did you guys know that even before the recession, even before the recession, three out of four families cited the number one cause of stress in their home is money. Do you know that America, it's the wealthiest nation in the world? You know that we're also the third most depressed. We are currently trailing China and India. Guys, what, what I'm saying there is hoarded wealth, it brings pain, which is why he starts right there, jumping back up to verse one. He starts from the beginning by saying, come now, hey, listen, you rich, and here's what I love about this. Usually, like, for us in culture, and this is probably me, if there's, like, someone super rich, like, if a, if a billionaire was, like, in New Braunfels, I would want to meet them. I'd want to get to know them. Like, out of my own insecurity, I'd want to be like, man, I wonder what it's like to be a billionaire. Like, hey, sweetheart, what would happen if we, like, got invited to their house one day? That'd be crazy. Like, we somehow, I feel this draw towards that. Where we look at Hollywood and the wealth or the lavishment or even the people here in our own town, the folks who have the blessing of more than enough. And I begin to imagine, what if, and I could, and here's how I'd spend it if I had it, and I always give a bunch away, but then I'm just going to buy whatever I want. And James, man, he has the opposite. He starts by distancing himself because he knows the misery that can come with the temptation and the trial, where he says, no, no, you rich. Weep and howl, burst into tears and grieve over what? The misery, the pains that will come upon you for wasted wealth. Because God is our God, we don't worship our wealth, we worship him. Much of this language, it's, it's made famous. James is pulling from a sermon he would have heard of that his big brother gave. He would have heard of the sermon that his big brother gave right there from Matthew 6. If you want to go see this, go read Matthew 6 where you'll see language like wealth and laid up treasures in heaven and all these different things where, where moth and rust destroy. Where, where Jesus, there's this pinnacle part where he says like an eye is a lamp to the body. When we see darkness, we become darkness. Jesus is not against wealth but he's against anything in my life that drips me off him, that takes me off mission. Anybody here ever see the Wall Street movie? Gordon Gecko, or maybe if you missed that one, there's a newer one, I haven't seen this one. Wolf on Wall Street, I do not recommend going to see either one of these at the end of this movie. Wolf on Wall Street, haven't seen that one, but it's basically the same premise. Right? The premise is there's, there's a young guy who's out to get wealth no matter the cost. Like he's true Wall Street, fueled by greed. The key theme, greed is good. There's this lavish lifestyle, like it's combustible, it's painful, and you watch the whole thing implode. There's a strange moral to it. I share that, though, because I think when folks come and people like me, man, and we talk about wealth, that's what we tend to think about wealth. Well, it's those people. It's those people. It's those people. That was the way I thought about it for a long time. And I can remember sitting and listening to a pastor share about this once. And man, I can remember thinking, it's not those people. 
it's this person. He started talking about emergency funds, right? You want to come and talk to middle-class Americans about something that makes them a little nervous and talk about taking it? Talk to them about taking their emergency fund, where he began to ask this question where like, man, how biblical is an emergency fund? If you don't know what I mean by emergency fund, it's three to six months of expenses set aside in savings for when something bad happens, right? And he says, how biblical is that? And remember, I can remember sitting there and thinking, oh, dude, I could answer that. Right? Hey, do you, he's probably just never read Proverbs 6. There's like this ant that stores up. It sets it aside. He's probably just never read where Jesus talks about, do you not see someone who goes to build up a barn? Do they not store up little by little? He just probably hasn't ever read the proverb about the general principle. The prudent, the wise, they see trouble coming, like financial trouble. They hide themselves. They, they get out of the way. They take steps to avoid it. But the simple, they go on and suffer for it. So the guy whose HVAC goes out, man, that's on him. He's probably just never read that. And he begins to list all those passages. And then he says, here's this. There's nothing wrong with having an emergency fund. But the reason that wealth, it's not just for Wall Street, it's for me. The reason that can attack me is where he said, how do you define an emergency? Like, what, what if, yes, it's your family and you use it? What if it's your neighbor? What if it's your community group? What's the person, what about the person in the church that's running in the same direction, that cares about Jesus Christ, but you don't really even like them? Is their emergency your emergency? What about the person you know in your own hometown that you don't even know their name, but you know they're an emergency? Is their emergency your emergency? What about your city and you seek the welfare of the city in which you live? Like, would you touch your emergency fund to help them in their emergency? Like, what about the next hurricane? What about the next, to the nations, would you touch your emergency fund to help them in their emergency? See, Christians, we have a very broad perspective when it comes to an emergency. Why? Our emergency fund is never in wealth. Your retirement account will never be big enough. The house that you've worked so hard, man, finally got the house paid off in cash. Now we can finally, man, 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 that's not your money. It's his money. How, how would he have you steward it? Church, do we hoard it or do we use it to help? Jump back in with me as we look at the text again and we see how people, they not just hoard it, but they can use it against others. This is James back in five. We're gonna read four through six. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Very positive perspective from James, I would say. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Right, so I want to show you what's the second way that we waste our wealth. We abuse it. We abuse it. Here's specifically what I mean. All gifts, all blessings, all tools are meant to serve, meant to help. That's true of your spiritual gifts. That's true of your resources. That's true of your faith in Jesus Christ. What you've been given is meant to be given. And wealth is something in your life you can use to hold people down or to help people we abuse the privilege of our wealth. We don't help up. We hold 
down. Here's two specific examples, and I'll walk you through what this would have meant to a first century Jewish society, right? First one you see here is abused wealth. It oppresses the wages of the laborers which mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud. They're, they're using their wealth to oppress, right? This likely would have been like a, a day's laborer, right, where the overseer, the landowner, the owner of this small enterprise, this small business would have said, hey, man, I'm not going to pay you today. I'm going to pay you next week. Or, hey, it's coming at the end of the month. All the while, as their cries ring out, it would have because it would have been literally true. Man, if they don't get that, they might die. If they don't, if they don't get that, their family will go without. Or, or the way it could show up here. Hey, man, people in positions, then when it comes to overseeing, to administrating, they intentionally, they don't give people a living wage, even though they expect of them that quality of work. To where they love going, and, and man, I can't wait to go see it. They love going to see the new Avengers movie with their family. And man, no, you can get icy, you get popcorn, you get candy. But when all of a sudden somebody who works for them, who comes alongside, wants to go see that, they're like, hey man, that just doesn't seem like good stewardship. Where we come and we don't extend the grace that we've been given, but we hold it back. And what happens in those moments? Those people, they cry out to a God in heaven always hears them. We abuse the wealth. When it's meant to help, we can hold others down with it. They cry out against you. The harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. There's a responsibility that comes with our wealth. How we steward that. Yes, you might not be literally swindling or defrauding people out of money, but if you are, repent. But you might not be doing that. But man, how do you use that to help up? Second thing wealth does, or abused wealth does, is it condemns. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Condemned here, it literally means to sentence. To sentence. Think like a, like a court appearing. What would have been true is still civil trials, even back in that day. What the rich could do then is they could take impoverished individuals who said, hey, they've held back wages. They haven't paid. They haven't done this. They could literally say, take me to court. And they, much like a modern law firm today, can just drown you in discovery, right? They could essentially go and just say, yeah, I can pay for it. You can't. And they oversaw that. They took the privilege, what was meant to help, and they held down. You have condemned and murdered. Murdered here, I share with you, I think he's speaking in hyperbole the same way he did at the start of chapter four. You have or you want, or excuse me, you covet and you do not have, so you murder. Murder there could have been literally taking the life, yes, as well as, as we know because of Jesus, anger, anger. And there's this progression that happens in the heart of greed where I, I start from this place of even like, man, good intentions, no, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to set this part aside, and here, here's my hope, and I just got to make sure that my kid pays for, we pay for college. And then I got to pay for books. And then really from books, but really I'd like to set aside some more just for that. Because what if else something happened? Man, there's nothing wrong. I had my college paid for, one of the greatest financial privileges of my life. If you have the ability to do it, bless you. But don't you dare ever not realize, okay, when's enough? When does God get it? It's all his and that's the way we have to think about this. 
That's the way we have to consider this. Because there's righteous people. Righteous here, don't just think salvific. Think like they're innocent. There's innocent folks that can be served, that can be helped, that Christ came and he died for. That you and I, in our privileged position, are meant to serve, to give it away, to find the impoverished, to the widow, to the orphan, to come and not just say, okay, how can I give because I'm supposed to as a Christian? Because that's what happens, man. We come and we say, okay, God, how much do you want me to give? Like we're being dragged to obedience by a God who saved us. Christians don't ask, how much should I give? Christians ask, seriously, God, how much do you want me to keep? How much do you want me to keep? It's yours anyways. I will one day give an account before you for it. How much do you want me to keep? Yesterday, I was clearing out some land in my backyard. I say land, that sounds like it was a lot. I don't know. It was like 30 feet by 15 feet, like a little patch. My wife and I were thinking about getting some chickens, right? But I go and I clear it all out. And one of the things is I'm thinking through, they got those bags that I can like stuff it in. But then, man, I'm going to make trip and trip after all these like bags, set it out by the curve. It's going to get blown over. I didn't want to do any of that. So I literally, I just thought, okay, I have a hose. I'm going to put this massive pile of brush, wood, all this stuff right here. And I'm talking like pile. And then, and then I'm going to go get some fire starter. I'm going to light that. Th- yeah, a bunch of people are shaking their head at me. You should have seen my neighbor, man, literally came out. You guys okay back here? Yeah, we're fine, Chuck. No, but all I have to say is, right, I had a hose. It was safe. But, man, I literally, I sat there. I burned all of this to the ground. It was a long day, like there was a bunch of sweat. I sat down in the cool of the shade, and I watched it burn, and I thought about my life. Right, here's what's true, Christian. You and I, we spend eternity with God in heaven, not because of what we do, but by what we believe. If you believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God who paid the penalty from your sins, who rose from the grave in victory, and he's coming back again, guess what happens with that belief? It changes how we behave to where one day what will happen is there will be an evaluation, there will be a judgment of how did you steward the greatest gift in the world? In 1 Corinthians 3, I wish we had more time to reference all these passages, talks about it will be sifted. Your works will be sifted by fire. And what is not of God will be left and burnt. I watched this pile of burning brush in my backyard And y'all, this is not me coming as like a pastor saying, how could you guys give more money? I don't care. Just be faithful. Like he's going to ask me what I called you to. If you don't trust your money here, don't give it here. Do I think you should biblically by conviction? Yes. But if you don't, just go give it. Why? Because it's in doing that you fight this tendency to hoard it, for it to creep into your soul. And I sat there and I watched this burning pile. And with sincerity, it's like, I got to give more. How do I give more? Like, how do I take the privilege if there's a raise or extra money? And my my first step is sincerely, God, I I don't want to have to increase my standard of living. How do I actually increase my standard of giving? How do I live like one day you will legitimately ask me about every penny in my account? And how do I actually act like that's true? How do I go without so that they can get? 
What if we live like that? A great way to waste wealth is to abuse it. We abuse it. We don't do it towards others. We build up the self. We don't help. We hold down. Let's look at this again. I'm going to read that final section there, the end of three and then down through, down through six again, because I want to pull out one more theme. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. In a day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The third way that you and I, we waste our wealth is we squander it. We squander it. Right there at the beginning or the end of verse 3, there's this phrase, in the last days. In the last days, what James is doing is he's applying to wealth an eternal perspective. Here's what the last days are, church. The last days are the time when Christ came, and then he will come again. We are in the last days. What James is saying is because you know he's coming, go all in. Because you know he's coming, give everything to him. Go all in. Don't live like you got a bunch of time. Don't wait to do well before you do good. Do good. Anybody here watch last night Spurs game? Anybody watch that? Great game. All right, towards the end of it, if you don't know, Spurs, San Antonio basketball team, first round of the NBA playoffs. They're playing Denver Nuggets. Great series. They went all the way to game seven. They come down very end of the game. They ended up losing by four, sadly, right? They come down to the end of the game, and there's this moment, 30 seconds left on the clock. The coach sees the clock. The players, they can't see the clock. The coach sees the clock, knows that there's a countdown, knows the game's going to be over. And this coach with these players is pleading with them to go and foul the guy. Because if they foul them, they can extend the time they play the game. And literally, Greg Popovich, the man himself, is on the court screaming, foul him! Foul him! Like pointing, yelling, like he's an older dude, and he gets into it, man, screaming at them. Why? He knew time was almost up. He knew they were in the last seconds and he's pleading with his team. Go all in. Give everything you can. There's just this much time left. I, I promise, at the end of this time, you're tired, you're tired. It's 25 seconds. When you get to the locker room and you can reflect, you want to have left it all on the court. Don't keep anything. Go! Yet we, as Christians, we don't live that way. We, we don't live like, how many days does he have for me? When's he coming back? How do I go all in? How do I not lay up my treasures? Because he's my treasure. How do I come and say every bit of me, my, my purity, my marriage, the discipleship of my kids, the stewardship of my finances, my commitment to my community group, my value in every way is coming from you and not from others. Whatever. How do we go all in? That is grasping the opportunity that comes with wealth. There's one more thing. There's a responsibility that comes with it too. 
He says you lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Luxury here, it literally means a, it's great language. It means you led a soft life. Self-indulgence is talking about the pursuit of pleasure. You remember last week, God's will, not yours. It's not about you. It's all about him. As I read that, there's this theme that stood out to me. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, church. We are soldiers. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. James says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. We're not living as missionary soldiers, man. We're living to hear and come make our own slice of heaven here all the while heaven awaits us there. Like as I thought about this, Imagine, man, like you, you found a soldier. Like pick whatever soldier you want, Navy SEALs, Special Forces, I, I don't care. Like you find them, they deploy, they go over, they're leaving base, and they have been assigned a mission, a mission to go into darkness, bring light and health and vitality to it until one day when their deployment ends, they are brought home. Imagine if that soldier came Right? And let's say they were in charge of communications. They had this communications pack, this bigger phone, and this communication soldier went, went to whoever is in charge of them and said, hey, I just wanted to ask. I know I've got this communication thing. I know this is so I can talk to you so we can carry out our mission. I know so this is if I need reinforcements, I can call it in. I know it's to help me fulfill the mission you sent me here for. I, I know all that. Could I take my iPhone? Why would you need an iPhone like this? GPS, this technology? Like you're gonna be like, no, no, I'd really like to take my iPhone. Why? Man, I don't know if you know this, but it's the fall. It's college football season, right? I'm an Aggie grad. Gotta watch my Ags, right? I, I gotta see that. Hey, I also, like I got some fantasy football picks. Right, I picked that. Or hey, really, man, I got this Netflix stash. Don't worry, though. I won't use data out there. I downloaded it here from the base, but I'd love to just watch some movies while I'm out there. Nothing wrong with Netflix. Nothing wrong with fantasy football. Nothing wrong with college football. But it's super weird to think about a soldier going and trying to take creature comforts to the front lines. Like we come and they, they assign them a Humvee, this vehicle that is meant for its intended path to advance the mission. And he's like, man, I'd really love it. Can we get some extra AC in there? Like, hey, the suspension, I know it's meant to be rugged and go off-road. Can we kind of soften that up? I'd love a cushier ride. Dude, soldiers don't say that. Soldiers don't do that. Soldiers say, you give me what I need for this mission. You supply my needs and then send me. Send me and I will go. I will combat darkness and I will, not for them, by faith, bring light. And then when you're done, bring me home, church. This world is not your home. Until the day that you die, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a soldier, a missionary sent 
out. Nothing in your life is for you, and that is how you live the good life. That is how you live the abundant life. Is there anything wrong with the goodness? No, it's called common grace. But when you make common grace your God, you miss it. I miss it. I love playing the game of, man, what would I put on my bucket list? What would be the things that I'd want to do? What would be the cars I'd want to drive? The house I'd want to live? I already know where I'd put my lake house. I already know what type of boat I'd get. I already know which ski range that I'd go to. I mean, I'd want to be reasonable, so I'd probably go like three times a year. Early fall, right in January, and then right before the season ends. I wouldn't want to move, though. That seems overdoing it. But man, church, my heart, it drifts there. I want my heart to drift towards. You made me a soldier. You've made me a missionary. My life is not for me. It is for them. How do I come and not get caught up in wealth knowing, one, you died for me. You are the greatest thing in life. That is my primary motive, a love for you. And two, one day, my brokenness in a moment when you asked me about how I stewarded the greatest gift that has ever been given to me. In that moment, I don't want to watch all my works burn. Church, you don't have to fear that moment. Perfect fear casts out love. Fear has to do with punishment. Grace is not punishment. But to those who know, to the soul, he loves me. He died for me. He's the greatest thing. Everything else in life, it's a letdown. They go all in. Why is James talking about wealth? It's because of that. He knows that is one of the main ways that our heart shifts. How can you mismanage wealth? You can mismanage wealth with $5,000, $500,000, $5 million, $50 million. Doesn't matter how much. Anytime you begin to think it's not God's, it's mine. Anytime you begin to live, not yielded, but selfish. Anytime I do that. I want to close with this. James has led us in, here's how to waste it. I want to end in, here's how to steward it. We're going to get one more passage. We're going to move our way quickly through, then we'll close. It's 1 Timothy 6. It's a famous passage. I'm sure some of you, you've heard this or you've read this. It's verses 17 through 19. It starts this way. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but, implied, set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm going to read that last part. Why does God care so much about how we manage, steward our wealth? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is this passage teaching you and me right from the start? As for the rich in this present age, if you have wealth here, you won't take wealth with you there. It will be left behind. 
charged them not to be haughty. Like wealthy people, there's a tendency in thinking through, well, hey, it was my ability, my intelligence, my positioning, my opportunity. I made this. This was me. Not God's will. It was my will. No, man. Whatever gifts you use to create, even whatever wealth you have were given you by God in heaven, don't be haughty. Don't come and place your security in wealth either because it's uncertain. I know many individuals who on one day had plenty and on the next day had none. Don't make that your security. Make Christ your security. Why? He richly provides us everything to enjoy. So what are the wealthy to do? What, what are we, church, to do? We are to do good, give your life away. To do good, to be rich in good works. I love that, man. Does a righteous living mark your righteous faith? To be rich in good works, to be generous. You are called, church. Christians to be the most sacrificially generous people on the face of the planet. Also, we're the only major world religion where our giving is not a part of our salvific requirement. Giving doesn't get you into heaven. Those who are going to heaven understand the privilege that they may not be rich in this age, but then they will be, and they give. The average American, the average evangelical American gives less than 2% of their income. Church, if you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you have $2,000, $200,000, two million dollars, do not be that person. In the New Testament, is there a commanded percentage? No, there's not. There is no biblically commanded requirement of a tie. That is an Old Testament practice. Old Testament followers of God, every year they gave, because every third year they had to go, it was 23.33%. Jesus Christ fulfilled that in the same way he fulfilled every form of Old Testament law. But what does Jesus do? What does the gospel do? It takes the law standard and it ups it a notch. Right? You come and it says, hey, don't kill somebody. And Jesus is like, hey, don't you be angry with them. Hey, hey, don't you commit adultery. Hey, he who looks at a woman with lustful intent. The new covenant always ups the standard. So no, there's, new test, there's no New Testament command to tie the certain percentage. Don't do that, but in your heart, the New Testament, if you believe in Jesus Christ, demands you ask the question, not how much do I begrudgingly give. God, sincerely, how much do you want me to keep? I'll depend on you. Give to where it hurts a little bit. I love there's a prayer in the psalm where it says, God, don't make me rich because then I'll forget you, but don't make me poor because then I'll steal bread. Live there. Whatever your version of that is, is your heart so leads you live there. You do it in community. Church, we are meant to be generous in the steward of our wealth and ready to share. Like we have extra to help those in need. That's what your excess is for. And by doing that, you store up treasures not here, but there. Man, I sincerely want to take hold of that which will lead to life. I want a good life, man. And a good life to me, I tend to think like it looks like new cars and vacations and trips. And I'd love the privilege and paying for college and doing all this stuff. And what if I could have this retirement to where I was set by then? I want all of that and none of it's inherently wrong. 
But what is absolutely right is if my heart first starts with, God, what do you want? I'll trust you. Even if it hurts, I'll trust you. That is how we steward, not waste, our wealth. We don't find life, prestige, or identity in it. My daughter, Lily, this week, we're working on potty training with her, right? And if you remember potty training, if you don't have a kid, I'll just foreshadow for you. You get a bunch of candy, and you try to bribe your kid to go potty in the potty, not in their diaper. Sure, your kid got it right away. Our kid, I love her. We're working on it to where when she goes potty in all the right ways, she gets five pieces of chocolate. That's right. I said five pieces of chocolate. It's a serious motive for her, right? There was this moment where she did all the things right that she should, and my wife came and brought her five pieces of chocolate. I was sitting at a table with my daughter, Lily, my wife, and my sister-in-law. And Lily, my two-year-old daughter, took her five pieces of chocolate, and she looked. She saw her aunt, her mom, and her father. And she said, here, have one. Have one. Have one. Lily was left with two. That was a bunch of times she just eats all five too, right? But man, I remember sitting there and seeing that and thinking to myself, when did I lose that? When did I lose, no, 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 daddy, you take it. When did I lose, yeah, that's right, this was mine. When did I lose that? No, 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 I want to share it. I know the amazing deliciousness that chocolate is. I want you to have some too. It's not that I'm going to go without. I'm just going to share what I have with others. Church, we have been given much. God in heaven is pleading with me and he's pleading with you. Don't waste it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the reminder in my life that life, it's not found in me. It is found in you. I thank you for the privilege of this. God, may we be folks who come whether we have no money, pennies, millions, wherever. May we not waste wealth. May we steward it. Would you show me in my life, God, how can I go more all in? Would you show us? Your word says, as those whose hearts who are stirred, God, would you stir us to be generous? I thank you for the generosity of the people who resource this place. The privilege it is to come and see lives changed under the banner and the reality of the financial stewardship that's been given here. May we be the most effective form of discipleship when it comes to the stewardship of a dollar in New Braunfels. Would you do it elsewhere? But may you do it here. I thank you. We love you. Amen. Well, guys, it's a joy getting to hang out with y'all. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship. See you next Sunday.